Hello again and a very warm welcome to the Voices from the Road podcast, episode number 10, with me, Valerie Singleton. In this edition, we have contributions from three different years, 1960, 1997 and 2002. And we'll crack on with the first of those years, 1960. It was the year the US entered the Vietnam War. The Grand National was televised for the first time. Doc Martin Boots went on sale. And it was just one year before I joined the BBC as an InVision continuity announcer. Our consultant historian, Alan Wakeley, has taken 1960 as his starting point to examine how our road network has developed. I had originally titled this little talk Rats and Elephants, or to be more accurate, Rat Runs and White Elephants. Our road system has largely evolved rather than been planned. Planning officers will take umbrage at this, no doubt, and I recognise that since, let's say, about 1960, there has been a great element of planning of motorways, bypasses, new town ring roads and so on. But firstly, all planning has to be placed onto a map of trackways, if not exactly roads, that had existed for centuries. Secondly, Planning necessarily involves guessing what future demand will be. This guesswork is usually well-founded on data available at the time. But inevitably there will be times when future demand will be both under and overestimated. This means that on one hand we have over time built new roads to meet a demand that has never materialised, and on the other we've built bypasses which have very quickly become at least as congested as the town roads they avoided forcing a second, and in a few cases even a third, bypass to be built. Let's have a look at the A417 between Sirencester and Gloucester. The original road existed from medieval times and went through all the villages on the way. This included Birdlip, to the west of which there was, and of course still is, a very steep hill which could not easily be widened. The advertised A417 route to Gloucester was therefore altered to turn sharp right at Birdlip and then to bear left, joining the A436 at the Air Balloon pub and then down a slightly less formidable hill into Gloucester. This, by 1960, created the first bypass of Birdlip Hill. Traffic on the A417 increased further and became impeded by sightseers on the bypass routing who stopped at the roadside to admire the wonderful views over Gloucester and into Wales. So the route was altered again when the whole A417 was upgraded, turning the viewpoint into a dead-end car park. But this has still proved to be insufficient, and the air balloon roundabout is now one of the most notorious bottlenecks in England. So much so that as I write in spring 2023, work is about to start on bypassing the whole area, which will create all sorts of barely used pieces of road to become yet more white elephants. Until all this opens, those in the know are increasingly using a rat run to avoid the jams. This is deliberately to go through Birdlip Village and down the very same steep hill which was the root cause of all the problems in the first place nearly 90 years ago. Now we move northeast. Is the Humber Bridge a white elephant? It certainly has the capacity to take far more vehicles than it does at the moment. Plans evolved as part of the creation of Humberside as a county. Building work started in 1974. The trouble was that most people from Grimsby on the south side of the Humber estuary had historically had no reason to go to Hull on the north side, or vice versa. The bridge brought the two places almost 50 miles closer by road, but it was in retrospect ridiculous to expect that people would suddenly start commuting in droves from one side to the other. 
there had been a ferry service for the few that really did want to. Eventually, even the government realised this and allowed the two halves of Humberside to receive back into, respectively, East Yorkshire and North Lincolnshire. Of course, the bridge was never designed entirely for short-distance traffic, and soon after its opening in 1981, it was connected on both sides to the motorway network, to the M180 to the south and to the M62 on the north side. But both these run east to west. Long-distance traffic from north or south stayed on the A1M until it reached whichever route towards the east coast was more suitable. There's still no really good north-south network linking to this bridge, especially on the south side, where traffic seeking the direct roads towards places like Kings Lynn or Norwich are forced onto rat runs, most notably the one through Barnet Biller Wold. Road signs, of course, discourage this, but the signed alternatives are very circuitous indeed. Arguably, an unnecessarily grand bridge has been built across the Humber estuary without sufficient demand ever arising and linking two areas with little affinity one for another. A white elephant? Well, at least it's a very pale grey one. This isn't always the case, of course. Dartford and Thurrock, just like Grimsby and Hull, had very little in common before the 1960s. A passenger ferry linked Gravesend with Tilbury, and still indeed does, or one could drive into London and use the Blackwall Tunnel or the vehicle ferry from Woolwich to the Docklands. Few did. Consequently, when the Dartford Tunnel opened in 1963, rather like the Humber Bridge, hardly anyone used it. Five special buses that had been built to transport cyclists to stop them inhaling fumes and slowing the traffic, were almost totally unused. Originally, they provided space for 230 bikes an hour, but were lucky to take a tenth of that number in an entire day. Four were withdrawn just after four months, and the remaining one very soon after. Apparently, another white elephant. But this time, the planners had got it right. Traffic gradually grew, and a duplicate tunnel was opened in 1980. Once the M25 was completed in 1986, the tunnel rapidly became one of the most important traffic arteries in the world and was duplicated again, this time by a bridge, in 1991. And of course it's still regularly inadequate for the huge volume of traffic trying to use it. Where new roads replace old ones, it's hardly surprising if the old ones become white elephants. But if the old roads then in turn become rat runs to avoid heavy traffic on the newer road, as at Birdlip, one has to question how effective planning has been. Much longer rat-run sections exist elsewhere, some planned deliberately and others frankly accidental. One of the longest is in Yorkshire. Apart from two miles or so just north of Dishforth, the A1M running south from Leeming at Junction 51 is paralleled for nearly 50 miles by the road that used to be the old A1 before the upgrade. The parallel rat-run that this creates was left deliberately and is known variously nowadays as the A6055, the A168 and the A1246, with bits of the A63 and A162 thrown in as well, and a long unclassified section in the Aberford and Micklefield area. These sections are not, of course, signposted to indicate they form a through route, but they're very useful indeed if there are blockages on the motorway. Another longish parallel to a motorway and less well disguised, is the 17 or so miles of the A33 between Basingstoke and the outskirts of Winchester, which runs almost directly alongside the M3. 
I actually prefer it to the motorway because it is much emptier, mostly runs in a straight line through lovely woody glades, and is so nearly as quick that it makes no real difference to a journey from, say, London to Bournemouth. This section of the A33 was probably not left deliberately, even though it was an inevitable result of the construction of the motorway. Some rat runs are hardly new. If we go back to the A1M, we find that traffic going north to join the A68 towards the Scottish border is routed via Junction 58 near Darlington. A glance at a map will show that leaving instead at Junction 56 and following the B6275 saves a good few miles. This road is straight as an arrow and usually saves several minutes over traffic using the motorway. The route has been there for a century, yes, really, and is still amazingly little used. This won't change. We have stopped using maps and sat-navs don't in general use rat runs unless the official route is closed for some reason. Let's look finally at a section of road which was not allowed to become either a rat run or a white elephant. The A3 near Hindhead in Surrey was put into a tunnel in 2011 to avoid bottlenecks in the village and air pollution around the Devil's Punch Bowl beauty spot. For once, the old row was mostly pulled up and the short remaining section has become a car park for visitors who want to walk on the heath. I leave you to decide whether this is the best kind of solution when new roads are developed, as doubtless will continue to happen. Alan Wakeley on the UK road network since 1960. Now we fast forward to 1997, a year that saw the death of the Princess of Wales following a collision in Paris, the defeat of the world chess champion Garry Kasparov by a computer, and a referendum in Scotland for the creation of its own parliament. In February of that year, our reporter James Luckhurst made a visit to snowy Finland in the company of a Kent police sergeant, Trevor Southgate. James would be writing a feature for the Daily Telegraph on the Finnish police's winter driver training programme and Trevor would have an opportunity to tread the Finn blue line. James is with me now. So, James, what on earth was the point of this trip? Well, for me, it was a fantastic opportunity. I was always looking for good feature ideas to sell to the papers and and the Telegraph liked the idea of that one. At the same time, I'd been at a reception at the Finnish Embassy and got talking to the right person who said that they might be able to fix something up as a kind of exchange visit. So a couple of months later, I found myself on the plane with this uh, traffic police sergeant from Kent uh, and off we went to do the uh, the training in Finland. And later that year, the Finnish sergeant came back to have a similar experience in Kent. What were your first impressions of rural Finland in February? Oh, I just loved it. I still do. I have a now, I suppose, a 30-year love affair with Finland. And, and there's something magical about the lakes and the deep snow and the trees and the quiet which I think is amazing. And to be honest, going on a sort of noisy car training thing was wonderful. I have had the opportunity to do much quieter, more kind of tranquil things in the Finnish forest in the middle of the winter, which I particularly like the, the, the cross-country skiing or just plodding on snowshoes through tracks that have never been touched. But yeah, the, the, the you know, brilliant opportunity with the uh, with the with the cars on this disused airfield that we were going around and picking up these advanced driving techniques, which I have had chance on occasion to use in this country. So it was quite worth it. 
And of course, that's how we met on a trip to Finland, wasn't it, in the early 2000s? Yes, we were on a snowmobile. Do you remember? There yes. Was a, I, it was April 2005. I was driving the snowmobile. You were my pillion passenger. I think I misjudged the depth of the snow as we made a turn. <laughs> that's right, I but remember that. <laughs> we, we, we just fell into the snow, we ended looked up, up and there was the Northern Lights. <laughs> it was, was, yes, it was lovely, and I, and I totally understand your love of Finland. I thought it was absolutely fabulous, especially our lovely day that we spent with the... Uh, the reindeer and the, uh, the people who live up in the north and look after reindeer. That was a great day. Anyway, back to driving. How good are Finnish drivers? And, and I mean, how steep a learning curve did you face? Finnish drivers, they seem to be born knowing how to cope with winter. And they they showed expertise using you know, things like braking with their left foot rather than their right foot. And just the, the sort of pedal controls were amazing. They also... They don't like the idea, you know, when we learn to drive, we have this kind of knit one, purl one, where a driving position 10 to 2 when we must never cross our hands. They laugh at us for that, because if you imagine you've got your hands at, let's say, the quarter to three position on the steering wheel, you can do that. You can cross them to the left. You can cross them to the right, but you must never take your hands off the wheel, because then you always know whether you're pointing right, straight on or left. And that was a terrific tip because that helped me to pick up a lot in a couple of days and to start doing these emergency manoeuvres past stationary objects or things that were thrown into our way as we were going down this track at about 40 miles an hour. Something we should try, do you think, in this country or really only for those very snowy conditions? I think everyone should have a go because you just don't know. I know that there's less and less snow in the south of, of the UK but just in terms of skill, I mean, we should all know how our cars are going to, how they can look after us, what sort of interventions we can make, um, because I think that builds your confidence. I'm not so sure it's perhaps a good idea, because on the other hand, if you're confident, you're going to try a few things you probably shouldn't do. What sort of other things did they make you do? Oh, well, we were doing these kind of very fast reverses where you then spin the wheel so you you it's, it's like in the shape of a j you're going backwards fast and then whip it round with a bit of brake and then go forwards again all in one maneuver as if you're getting away from something we were going through in like emergency stops on bends and all of this is of course on ice and snow but the great thing was that whatever we did there were no consequences because there was just these massive walls of snow all around the track so you know, if we did overcook it or get something wrong they'd just radio for a big truck to come and pull us out so, so, so it was safe it was safe yes i hope you invited the Finns back to the uk as a thank you for their hospitality yes well the original plan was for the sergeant from finland to come as a sort of reciprocal visit back to ken but he in fact brought four colleagues with him and they had a fantastic time during that summer um i can remember being part of a little team that took them to leeds castle a Canterbury Cathedral and a few other stops as well but Kent Police laid on a VIP motorbike team for them so they just had this wonderful procession through Kent where the traffic was stopped for them and uh, I think they were made to feel very much like uh, VIPs. Do you still go back there whenever you can? I go back to Finland whenever I can. I was back there in fact just last week mm. working for a week and it was midsummer. the sun shone and it was just fabulous. Do you, do you need someone to carry a suitcase? <laughs> I'll let you know if they ask Always me available. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. Thank you very much, James. James Luck has remembering a very special trip to Finland in the company of Sergeant Trevor Southgate of Kent Police, who very sadly died in 2022. 
Finally for this episode, we're in 2002, a year famous for President Bush's Axis of Evil speech, former President Jimmy Carter's Nobel Peace Prize, the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, at the age of 101, and the adoption of the euro currency among 12 member states of the European Union. In the East Midlands, a brand new motorcycle safety initiative called Shiny Side Up was created, something that's still going strong today. Its founder is Heidi Duffy. We're 21 this year and we don't look a day over, well, 21, I think we'll leave it there. Yeah, we started in uh, 2002. At the time, there was a a terrible number of motorcyclists who were being killed uh, out on the roads uh, within Nottinghamshire Police Area uh, because Shiny Side Up originally started in Nottingham uh, and then um, became an East Midlands uh, road safety group and still true to that day the same partners uh, are uh, Leicestershire, uh, Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire uh, and National Highways of course. So yeah we started out because there was a terrible loss of life and there was a bit of a hmm, what's the word um, people weren't that worried about it because they felt bikers were a victim of their own demise I suppose which anybody in road safety would find that an an awful sort of thought but anyway we joined together and we started looking at each individual accident uh, not just the fatal obviously the seriously injured as well and if you think in those times um, an average motorcycle deaths within one police force area was 23 in one year and I mean I've dug the stats out um, looking at uh, what we were dealing with in 2002 uh, and what we've got in in 2022 Um, and um, thankfully that number has reduced by at least 50%. Uh, However we're not complacent and we're as enthusiastic and fresh today as we were in 2002 in wanting to reduce motorcycle collisions. For the benefit of those who may not know, what is meant by shiny side up? It's all about keeping the shiny side up and the rubber side down, which means that the rubber is the tyres of the bike and they should be firmly uh, fixed to the road and the shiny side is the bit that faces upwards. So it's just saying to bikers, let's work together to keep the shiny side up and the rubber side down. Don't you find motorcyclists as a group very hard to reach and to connect with? I think motorcyclists aren't difficult to reach. Young riders, which obviously are my other hat, are very difficult to reach, but motorcyclists are very sociable. They they always want to uh, spend time talking to you. They offer their opinions. So um, we've done a a huge, vast array of different things to try and uh, to talk to them and try and let them know, you know, what's happening out on the roads. So years ago, we did Donington Park. Uh, We did all the British Superbike. John Reynolds was our ambassador uh, and he did a a film for us called Fatal Attraction. uh, And uh, that won a Prince Michael of Kent International Road Safety Award in 2003. So 20 years ago, I've still got it. Um, so we've done a number of things. We've done films. Uh, we've say we've done events. Uh, the, the the most thing I suppose that's been most popular over the years is the signs, the shiny side up uh, signs, which is your think bike uh, to die for, uh, Ben's dead ahead, uh, filter with care, uh, and turning check mirrors. So it's it's the big signs that have got them. So you've been going twenty one years. How does shiny side up retain its relevance today? Um. Uh, 
brand recognition uh, certainly is now playing a big factor because we have been around for some time obviously say 21 years um then the signs uh, which can be seen all right across the uk now um have got brand recognition so when the motorcyclists and drivers see those signs they know that um our uh, research has shown that motorcyclists are being killed and seriously injured at those locations. It also gives them a clue as to what type of accident. So where you've got Think Bike, then it'll be those on four wheels that are pulling out in front of two wheels, uh, perhaps at junctions. Uh, where it's to die for, it's really um, a, a perhaps a long straight approaching a bend and making sure the motorcyclist is travelling at the right speed uh, to, to go into that bend. So uh, the signs are really good brand recognition. But moving forward, uh, yeah, infographics and social media, we're really embracing um, the change that we've seen that motorcyclists uh, during lockdown went onto the internet and are now engaging with us uh, on social media platforms, which is great. I tell you what then, Heidi, you've got three wishes for Shiny Side Up for the coming years. What are your three wishes? Firstly, it would be to car drivers uh, or to those on four wheels. Um, you're sharing the road with motorcyclists and other road users. You've really got to look outside of your metal box and appreciate there are people out there on two wheels. Um, and so my first request would be um, to all uh, drivers on four wheels in vans and cars, etc. think bike. Uh, they are out there. Look for them uh, and, um, and just be aware that they are somebody's son, somebody's husband, etc. So a more kinder approach to those on two wheels would be uh, my first uh, my first wish. Second wish, we are seeing that um, fewer people are wearing PPE. And when we talk about PPE, obviously we're talking about, um, you know, the, the, the leathers or whatever uh, new material. There's some fantastic new materials out there that look really fashionable, but can protect you so well uh, in case you do come off your bike. Uh, and, um, and my third wish uh, would be for uh, get some training. Um, it's uh, not sufficient just to pass your test and get out on some some of the bigger bikes uh, there is some great training out there NCIA have got their uh, elite uh, training portal which gives you all the information about what training is available um, so um, that's my three wishes Heidi Duffy remembering the creation of the shiny side up initiative and that's it for this edition of Voices from the Road. We'll be back again next time with more motoring memories. But for now, from me, Valerie Singleton, it's goodbye. <laughs>